Let's turn together to 2 Peter chapter 1. I lied, 2 Peter chapter 2, sorry. Hopefully that's the last lie I tell this morning. From here on, it's truth, all truth. 2 Peter chapter 2, I'm gonna, we're going to read specifically at verse 10 through 22. You remember, of course, that Peter is writing from a, a prison in Rome. He's awaiting his own execution for having preached the gospel with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His days are very short. And so as he considers God's church, he asks this question, what do God's people need to hear in order to navigate a world full of deception and and lies? I told you that there's a big difference between chapter 1 in 2 Peter and chapter 2, and that is because at chapter 2, the tone becomes heavier. God is able not only to rescue the godly from trials, but He is very much able, very much willing to reserve the wicked for punishment. And so when we pick up at the second half of verse 10, Peter expands this picture. This is God's Word. We pick up with bold and willful. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They've followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved." For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is God's Word. Let's pray for His help. Father in heaven, uh, these are are, are heavy words. They are powerful words. Uh, They are full of weight and import. And so we pray that you would grant to us as your people the ears to hear tenderly through the ministry of your Holy Spirit what you desire to say to us. And I pray, Father, that you would use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick like me 
to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I wonder what you should do when the Bible gives you such a vivid, ugly picture of a false teacher. There is a hesitancy as a preacher to walk through the Word. You come to a theme and you say, well, we've already covered false teachers. It's pretty vivid, pretty ugly. You can, of course, read it and hold it out there. It's about somebody else, maybe a false teacher out in the world, a false teacher in the broader church, that prosperity gospel preacher on TV, or maybe a story that you heard a long time ago about a fallen pastor who crumbled under the weight of his own Messiah complex, still out there. Maybe it's a description in your head of a, of a pastor that you heard about who used to be faithful. For a little while, he, he seemed to minister to God's people and care for them, and somewhere along the way later, he crumbled under a cloud of adultery or scandal. It's somewhere out there. Could be. I guess option number two, if you want to try to apply a text like this, is you can look at it and say, is this me? And when I say me, it would be comfortable for you to say, then Eric's talking about himself, but I mean me and you. And in that, you wonder, could this be a picture of my worst self? Bold and, and willful, running on at the mouth about matters that I don't understand. Are my eyes full of adultery? Is my heart insatiable for sin? Is my heart trained in greed? And surely a passage that is so terrifying really does demand an honest evaluation of your own heart and your own mind. Lord, what are my motives? Lord, what are my thoughts? What are my words? And I should say that I think those two options are, are needed and, and helpful. But I do not believe that these are the final landing spot for my heart or yours. And that's because I believe that there's a, a third way. How can you use a false teacher for a godly purpose? How can you use a description of someone like this to grow spiritually? It's helpful to look out there. Certainly helpful to look in here. But as you read this ugly and false description, you must gaze more fully at what is true. How do you do that? Well, you hold up Christ up next to this passage in order that you might train your heart for truth. All that's ugly in these false teachers is actually beautiful in the character of Christ. Everything that false teachers do to, to carry away the weak and the vulnerable, Christ does precisely the opposite to, to strengthen and, and care for God's people. And so for just a moment, we're going to stare in the direction of falsehood so that we might learn a better way. Our points this morning, false teachers, how they look, how they work, how they turn. First, how they look. It's really verses 10 through 16. If you are a visitor here today, you would read those verses and you would go, ouch, this is ugly. 
It's vivid. It's a, it's a description of the character of some men. You notice first that they're tainted with bold arrogance. Verse 10, bold, willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. And then again in verse 12, they blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant. Now, who are these glorious ones? that these false teachers blaspheme. It's a strange phrase to our ears. I'm convinced the first readers would have immediately understood. And that is because of their own traditions. I mentioned last week a book called First Enoch that they would have mostly read. They would have understand, understood that this is a reference to, to evil or false angels. They weren't glorious because they were good. They were glorious because God had created them and originally in beauty. Verse 11, false teachers who are weaker than these demonic powers blaspheme what is stronger than them, though angels, that is angels not fallen into sin, which are greater in might and power, do not blaspheme. Where do you get a reading like that? You compare this verse with Jude, verse 9 and 10 where it says something really similar. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people, Jude refers to false teachers himself, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. Now, that's a lot. What's the point? The false teachers did not tremble about demonic powers because they didn't even think they existed which is so perfect for their way of life, which really makes sense of the concept of bold and willful. And these people are reckless, they're arrogant, as they dismiss any thought that willful sins would actually open them up to any sort of demonic attack. Here's the point. Good angels, like wise human beings, do not take evil powers lightly. Angels who wouldn't even dare to to slander or sneer at the demons, but these false teachers, by their lives, do just that. They'd say, nothing's evil. No such thing as demonic powers. What I do with my own body, well, it's my own business. doesn't hurt me. doesn't hurt anybody else. After all, it's consensual. And and somewhere deep down in my heart, I think I'm a, a good person. And so if you and I would read a passage like this and we would say, well, I want to train my heart for truth. Well, certainly you must know that false teachers exist out there in the world. There really are people who underestimate the existence and power of evil forces. Most of the world sees absolutely no spiritual danger, much less bondage in giving themselves fully and completely to sins of the flesh. But you must also be alert to your own mind and heart. Is there anything in you that would ever underestimate the potential power of evil? Do you ever tremble over the fact that your own sinful choices might be a a kind of flirting with the very demons of, of hell? Is your attitude towards sin simply bold and arrogant? More than that, I think if we're going to land in that third spot, if we would train our hearts for truth, we have to gain it. We have to gaze at Christ. Jesus knows for sure Satan exists. He knows the demons are real. 
What does Jesus do when he is tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, with every single temptation, every twisting of God's Word, Jesus answers back with the truth of God's Word. Jesus, if you're God, why don't you turn that rock into bread? Well, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, how about this? Let's go on the top of the temple. Why don't you throw yourself down? I'm going to misquote Psalm 91. Why don't you throw yourself down? He's not going to let you be hurt. And Jesus answers rightly, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then again, Satan shows Jesus every kingdom on the face of the earth. I'll give it all to you. It's been entrusted to me. I'll hand it over to you. All you have to do is serve me. And Jesus answers again from the book of Deuteronomy. It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So we can use this as a warning out there. We can use it as a warning in here. But if you and I want to grow in Christ-likeness, brothers and sisters, we, we have to recognize first that Christ is our object of faith. He's the one that secures this full and final victory over the evil one. Friends, number two, it's by his humble obedience, his love for the Father, that he saves the likes of you and me, who too often really are bold and arrogant to the point of laziness. It's also Jesus who gives us, through His Spirit, a healthy, sober, growing awareness of just how dangerous sin really is. False teachers, how they look, bold, arrogance, but you also see sensuality. Verse 12, irrational animals, creatures of instinct, that's a vivid picture too. Sensuality reduces human beings down to animal behavior. So these False teachers live not by godly wisdom, but by fleshly instinct. Notice again, verse 13, they count it pleasure to revel in in the daytime. That same word again, verse 13, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. It's, it's, It's taking us to the mud pit, like wallowing in it. They're so consumed by their own lusts, whatever they are, they have no sense of decency. Their sensuality consumes both night and day. And yet like wolves... Among sheep, they sit down with God's people. They partake of the Lord's Supper as if there's no inconsistency at all. Number four, verse 14, eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. You see what they're doing? They, they actually look at every single woman as if she's an object of potential adultery. And you notice this phrase, insatiable for sin. That's actually how the Bible always speaks about sexual sin. I heard one pastor say once, I, I really wish I lived and ministered in a time where sexual sin was not the prevalent issue of the day. I can hardly agree more. And yet it's all over the scriptures because it has rarely not been the issue of the day. And so you look here and it says it is something like a fire that can never be quenched. Why is that? It's because God designed the sexual relationship to function in one right and correct context. One man, one woman, in a covenant union of faithfulness. And any veering outside of this creation design distorts this good gift in such a way that it becomes an insatiable appetite. And once you feed it, you keep feeding it. And it can never be satisfied. Today, so many people have been told or even taught 
that pornography is a safe option. So common, so normal, it's not a big deal. How many in the church could tell the consequences of that lie? Because, of course, you open the door to pornography and you are never satisfied with one image or one idea. And so it grows more graphic and less and less humane. A young Christian guy comes to the pastor, comes to an older man. Hey, help me understand how far is too far in my dating relationship? How far can I tempt temptation? Because, of course, he's coming to realize that with every physical desire, with a person that you aren't married to, that physical desire continues to grow if you feed it. And so that first thing, which seems so fantastic, becomes dull, and you just want a little bit more and a little bit more. Or the married person who crosses the line with one unconfessed adultery, unrepented of, later leads to another and another and another. And so if you would train your heart for truth, are there people out there like this? Yeah. Praying on God's people? Sure. Be watchful, be alert. It's not everybody around you, but they do exist, even within the church. If you would train your heart for truth, is there anything within you that is tempted to live, not by a godly wisdom, but, but more by fleshly instinct for you it may not be sexual temptation Galatians chapter 5 connects all other kinds of fleshly desires it's not just the sex it's idolatry it's hostilities it's strife it's jealousy it's it's outbursts of anger it's selfish ambition it's dissensions it's it's factions it's it's wanting to have a name for yourself it's envying If you would train your heart for truth, friends, let's gaze at Christ. How do you find Christ in the midst of such an ugly picture? Well, these false teachers in the text are described as as blots and blemishes. It's actually a phrase that Peter loves because in the Greek, if you just add an A to it, an alpha to the beginning of that word, it changes it to to the opposite. And Peter loves this very phrase in the opposite direction. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Peter says, You were actually ransomed from sensuality and from guilt over sin, not by gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like a lamb who is without spot or blemish. We're going to come back to that phrase at the end of the book, 2 Peter three fourteen. in just a few weeks. He says, brothers and sisters, wait for the Lord. You were made for the new heavens and the new earth, a place where righteousness dwells. And then he says, since you're waiting for that world, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish and at peace. And so if you and I would use such an ugly picture for good, you must see Christ You must see your salvation because God has provided a lamb unstained. And while you and I wait for this final redemption, you and I are to live in the identity in which we've been saved into. An identity that is without spot or blemish. How they look, they're bold, they're arrogant, they're sensual, but also greedy. 
pick up at the middle of verse 14, they have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Now, in the Bible, you always find a connection between sexual sin and greed. And this, this word, which is translated trained, is the same word from which we derive our word gymnasium. Which is to say that these people have been exercising the muscle of greed so long that they're well trained in it by now. Peter's not the one cursing them when he calls them accursed children. He, he, he actually means they're literally under the curse of God. And so even as he continues to weave this thread of, of judgment, what he's doing by saying this over and over again is countering the message of these false teachers. God doesn't judge sin. He doesn't care what you do with your body. He loves us all. Look at verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. He was rebuked by his own transgressions. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Those who have left the, the straight way that follows Christ have followed the way of Balaam. It's a reference back to Numbers chapter 22 through 24. Balaam was, a high, was hired by the king of Moab. You remember the people of Israel are coming into the promised land and Moab, the king of Moab gets scared. And so he hires this man who he thinks can just speak curses or blessings. And, and after two very veiled attempts to try to bargain more money out of the Moabites, Balaam finally says, okay, well, I'll go. Then an angel of the Lord stands in his way. He literally blocks the path of Balaam and his donkey. And Balaam can't see the angel of the Lord standing in front of him with a, with a sword in his hand. And so he starts beating his donkey. The donkey walks into a field and the donkey walks into a vineyard and he's totally closed in. But he's still beating the donkey. And the donkey opens his mouth. Haven't I always been a good donkey for you? Your whole life you've been riding me. I'm not taking you in that direction because God is blocking the way. And so the point in the book of Numbers is the point here. The donkey has more spiritual sensitivity than Balaam. And these false teachers are like that donkey. They have more spiritual sensitivity. I mean, excuse me, they have less sensitivity than a donkey greed governs them. They're spiritually blind. And so by stories in, Balaam can't curse God's people. So instead what he does is he encourages God's people to enter into sexual immorality. So if you and I are going to train our hearts to gaze upon Christ, how do you find Christ in this reference to Balaam? Uh, obviously, on one hand, Jesus is the exact opposite of, of Balaam. He's not greedy. He's generous. He's not leading people down a path of sin. He's leading them down the way of the cross that they might lay their sins down there. More than that, the angel in the story of Balaam is the angel of the Lord who is none other than the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the one standing there with the sword in his hand. He stands blocking the way of the path of evil. Not that way. You must listen to the voice of the Lord. You must follow him. And so if we're going to take this down to its logical conclusion, I think that makes me the donkey 
And you might say, well, if God can use a donkey to speak truth, I'll praise him for using another stubborn beast. That's funny. False teachers, how they look. They're arrogant, they're sensual, they're greedy. Notice how they work. Peter says along this path, heading away from Christ, walking away from godliness and holiness, let me make sure you know exactly what you're walking toward, what you're listening to. Verse 17, waterless springs, mists driven by a storm. I think that illustration is lost on so many of us, but if you lived in the ancient world, if you lived in a desert climate with no running water, the image is crystal clear. Like walking up on a well that promises something to quench your thirst, and all that's there at the bottom is sand. Or standing in the desert and seeing a storm cloud rolling in, promising rain that just blows past. False teachers make these big promises that can never deliver. They promise refreshment to the thirsty. But then when you drink from their instruction, you find yourself more spiritually thirsty, more confused than you were before. In fact, theirs is a really contemporary message. And here's what I mean. It's a, it's a Christianity with, with Christ But also, you can engage every longing with no heart change. It's the same same thirst-inducing message of teachers today, where you might get people more stirred up over pithy slogans or getting to be a part of some big movement, but you would never show them the shackles of sin, never show them the freedom of, of a broken and contrite heart, speak nothing of a suffering Savior who takes your sins directly to the cross and there frees you from them. Now notice how they work, verse 18. Speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And the word entice is full of meat. He used it back in verse 14. He uses it again here. It's the image of a, of a fish hook. Why does the fish, why does every fish keep falling for this same worm? The same worm that's dangling and bobbing because they never, ever think there could possibly be a hook. And that worm, which makes no sense to you, is to the fish just a momentary promise of ecstasy. But a false promise is always accompanied by a hook to snare you in the place of your very fleshly longing. And so you see the young and vulnerable, the newly converted, the untaught, but you also see the older, distracted, forgetful, asleep, already enslaved believer who keeps falling for the worm. It's a loud promise. Christianity. But also you're able to bite down on the worm. Able to bite down on the sins of your flesh without eating the hook. Mmm, a worm. Something to satisfy my deep cravings. Peter says on that hook, they always bait it with the promise of freedom. As if you could nibble and not get hooked. 
And those who promise this kind of freedom are always slaves of corruption themselves. You might say, well, that's pretty self-evident somewhere out there in the world. I mean, the televangelist who's always asking for money seems to be enslaved to his own greed. The woman who is hawking her own nudity is enslaved by that. The advertiser who tells you that your deepest heartfelt longings will be satisfied by simply driving a Cadillac. He has to convince you tomorrow that you need another one or that there's more hope. Or even a pastor who creates a movement behind a big smile, a big promise of prosperity, then he has to keep smiling. He has to keep promising even more in the world of disease and suffering and heartbreak. And all of this, which seems so comfortably out there, is great until you read verse 19. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 6. Jesus says something very similar in John chapter 8. And the meaning is so clear that it's painfully convicting. It's so pointed that you can't just look out there. You can't even look down the aisle. You must look at your own heart. One New Testament scholar explains, if a person cannot overcome certain habits and sins, they are slaves to such things. What has overcome you? For some of you, it may in fact be the bodily passions of the flesh or greed like these false teachers. But is anybody overcome by fear? Anyone overcome by Anxiety, the unknown, the unseen, possibility of disaster down the road. My heart is consumed in that place. Others could be consumed by loneliness. And so you make every single choice, every idol that you pursue is an attempt to soothe that heartache. Others might be overcome by guilt well, I just don't think I'm ever going to be able to get over my past. Either that one big missed opportunity or that one big failure that I can't forget and you are enslaved to your memory. How could you ever trace what you are enslaved to by answering this question? What is it that overcomes my thoughts, my pursuits, my time, my resources, down what paths do I keep finding my heart and my mind chasing? Peter says, to that you are enslaved. And I should say that verse 19 is so convicting, it's so pointed, that if we did not read it in the context of the rest of the Bible... In other words, if we were to take this one phrase alone, you would self-destruct under the weight of your own sin and shame. And yet, if you are going to take this passage and stare at Christ, if you're going to use it for good, to train your heart for truth, you must go back to what Jesus says in John 8. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But then he goes on to say, if the Son sets you free then you will be free indeed. 
Paul in the book of Romans says, you once really were a slave to sin. But now you've been purchased into righteousness. And he says, therefore, since you've been purchased into this new righteousness, live as one who really is free. How can you gaze at Christ? Train your heart for faith. It's a matter of identity. This is exactly where Peter began this book. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, a slave of Christ Jesus. Because Jesus alone promises refreshment to the thirsty, and He alone quenches the deep thirst of your soul. False teachers, how they look, how they work, and finally, how they turn. Look at verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now let me be really clear. He's not saying that a true Christian, one of God's elect, could ever be snatched out of the hand of God. The key term here is the phrase, to know. He says, knowledge of our Lord, verse 20. Known the way of righteousness, verse 21. It would have been better for that person never to have been taught the way of salvation. And you go, well, how can he say that? The way of salvation. I mean, that's great news. Because once you see the way of salvation and you decide to turn from it, then your heart will become harder and harder and harder in sin. It becomes increasingly unlikely that you would ever re-turn. Like sliding down a slippery, muddy trail. Way back up to truth takes so much effort. It takes so much honesty. It takes so much humility that those who turn away are likely to think of Christianity as just a phase that they pass through. The hook is in their mouth. They are ensnared by destruction. And so Peter cites Proverbs 26, 11, and he concludes the message with such a disturbing image. He says, both dogs and pigs return to what's filthy, what's disgusting, because they find the filthy and disgusting more attractive than being cleansed. Likewise, the only reason a false teacher or anyone would turn away from Christ and return to their filth of their former sins is because enslaved to impulse, he finds sin more attractive than loving service to Christ. None of this implies that you, as a Christian, would not stumble and trip along the way. But let's be really clear. Stumbling and tripping along the way, along the path to follow Christ, is not the same as turning away. For a moment, we've stared at falsehood so that we might learn the better way. So in closing, the best way For a sincere believer to use these warnings, 
Number one, you must know that falsehood exists out there. Be watchful of the voices that you heed. Number two, test your own heart. Where do the warnings of this text convict me? Number three, train your heart for truth by gazing at Christ. Learn truth from the one who really is true. Learn what is good from the one who is good. Learn purity from the one who alone is pure. Learn grace from the one who is full of grace. Let's give thanks to God and pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. Though in some ways terrifying and vivid, when you take us to the cross, we find that that which is terrifying and vivid has been laid upon our King Jesus. And so we pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would comfort us where we need comfort. And most of all, that you would point us to Christ and be exalted as you lead us to your kingdom. We pray all this in the name of our Lord. Amen.